A light rain floated toward the train track. Morning came early in DuPont. DuPont's about two and a half hours south on I-5. You hit it if you drive I-5 south. A December breeze blew just enough to make 48 degrees feel a tad cooler. And it was one of those Washington mornings where it wasn't dark anymore, but it wasn't quite light. The horizon produced a sound, and it grew louder and louder. Bits of rain on the track began to puddle together as it shook. Amtrak Cascades Passenger Train 501 makes her inaugural run the year's 2017. This will be the first train to attempt this new train track. It's the new route. It's the time to christen it. And as this steel horse gallops over the overpass, it's the curve where the train goes over I-5, over the bridge, she came in way too hard. The 30-mile-an-hour curve received 14 rail cars at 78 miles an hour. The first seven cars went off the bridge, away from the curve. 350 gallons of fuel spilled out upon I-5. Seven cars broke their fall. Three people died. 57 people were injured, some quite seriously. A review of the wreck reveals that reasons included a a lack of training, engineer error, and a failure to heed the signs. Well, this morning we arrive on the scene of a religious wreckage. We arrive alongside a spiritual derailment. You and I will listen in as our Lord delivers his last public sermon. He's going to speak of his opponents and he's going to speak to them. Our Lord Jesus will preach three hazards of our faith so that you and I would avoid derailment. Religion, embraced by the natural thoughts of man, has a way of going off the rails. And that can happen within us. Yes, even within us as believers, as Christians, these things can happen. You see, this morning I'm not speaking to the atheist. And I'm not speaking to the pagan, and I'm not speaking to the unbeliever, even within the Christian, something wars against grace, something that wants to alter the gospel, a tendency to either add to it or to subtract from it. There's something within us that, that tends to want to go around or against or below or beyond or past the grace of God even to sometimes strike out on our own, to help out God's word just a little bit, to make it more doable. You see, religion derails whenever it happens apart from the heart. God-pleasing religion only happens when it comes from our hearts. And just as any house will eventually collapse if the foundation is not correct, so too will one's religion cater if not practiced from the heart. You and I can learn as we listen to Jesus. In Matthew 23, he's going to denounce 
the religious leaders. He's going to denounce the religious systems. If the track, if the two rails of the track are the gospel, going off on either side is derailing from that gospel. The two sides of the track can, can represent two systems that, that the religion of men can fall into. Off one side is, is antinomianism. That's just a fancy word for no law or no rules. Someone may claim to be a Christian. And because I'm a Christian, I have grace and I have forgiveness. I, I can do what I want because God loves me and God forgives me. That's one fall. On the other side are these Pharisees. This group we'll meet this morning. You see, the other side of this is legalism. And this is the issue that the Pharisees have. These Jewish leaders have created a system based upon rules and good works and deeds, and it's overburdened the people. It's become legalism. And so great have these burdens become that they're impossible to keep. It turns them into hypocrites. Jesus this morning is going to rebuke it, and he's going to rebuke it all. And in Matthew 23, he's going to set forth a holy zeal. You and I this morning will encounter a Jesus of a righteous anger. And we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and this morning we enter Matthew chapter 23. And if you can recall in any way, it's been one chapter after another of contention. Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. I would call it a simmering volcano. Lava's slowly worked its way toward the surface. Back in chapter 9, verse 3, the scribes, the Jewish religious leaders, they call Jesus a blasphemer. Chapter 9, verse 34, the Pharisees, other religious leaders, they link Jesus to Satan. In chapter 12, verse 14, they conspire on how they could destroy Jesus. You can hear the lava floating towards the top. Chapter 16, verse 1, the religious leaders team up to test Jesus, and last week they grilled him with the intent to discredit him. Chapter 23, the volcano erupts. Jesus delivers what may well be the strongest rebuke in all of his teachings. This is a complete indictment of a religion that's derailed. And it's a warning for for you and I. And I want to begin with the first four verses this morning. I would call this the first hazard to our faith. We've derailed when we only talk the talk. Verses one through four, we've derailed, we've come off the rails if we're only talking the talk. Now, to be clear, there should be some kind of speech that accords with faith, right? In other words, if something's truly happened in our heart, there'll be an overflow that comes through the mouth, but we also know that the mouth can do its own thing. The mouth can have a way of trying to mask or disguise the heart, to want to sound good. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He spots a problem with the speech of some. Well, biblical religion, Christ-honoring religion that, that flows from the depth of the heart. Matthew chapter 23, verse 1. Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, 
do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. We see here that Jesus is speaking to the crowds and his disciples. In Matthew's gospel, there's a group, the crowds, they are onlookers. They're generally unbelievers who have not decided to follow Jesus, at least not yet. I want to be optimistic. I want to call them potential disciples, future Christians. These are people who seem to have some interest in Jesus. Maybe it's his reputation. Maybe it's his healing ability. They're seeking from him maybe a miracle or something along that line. And in Matthew 23, we call them Passover pilgrims. At this time, on a timeline of the life of Jesus, he's getting very close to his crucifixion. In fact, it's called Passover week. It's an event that God ordained for his people way back in the Old Testament. They were to gather in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Remarkably, in just a couple of days, Jesus will be the Passover lamb. He will give his life as a sacrifice for many. With this group, there's another group, they're called the disciples. And to be clear, a disciple is just another word for a Christian. Every Christian is a disciple. We might know about the 12, the 12 disciples, the, the leading disciples that Jesus had sent out, But that term applies to you as well. If if you're a believer this morning, you are a disciple. But where are these scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders that Jesus speaks of? These are the ones that he's going to take to task for their derailed religion. And to be clear, the, the scribes would be known as Old Testament lawyers. They're theologian lawyers. These guys were really smart and knew how to, to, uh, to, to apply the Old Testament law. And the Pharisees, they were one of the religious groups of the time. All scribes were Pharisees, but not all Pharisees were scribes. And I believe that they were close by. They were not too far out of earshot from Jesus. At least by verse 13, if you look down a little further, eventually he's going to be addressing them directly. And it seems to come almost immediately after verse 12, after he addresses the crowds and disciples. Is Jesus gossiping here? Is he slandering this group of scribes and Pharisees? I don't think he is. I think that he realizes that there's a real temptation, not only among the scribes and Pharisees, but also in the hearts of the disciples. And in the hearts of the crowds, there's a real temptation to take what God has issued and make religion about men, to dumb it down and make it about the flesh, to make religion about rules apart from a relationship with God. So these scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Now, the chair of Moses is some symbol of authority. It could mean that there was an actual chair in the Jewish synagogue of the time, and this is where a teacher would sit to deliver his message. Another view is that this is not necessarily a piece of furniture, but more of a position. I mean, we know about this from our day. You have the chair of medical sciences or the chair of ancient history. 
This is a position within a university that knows a lot about that discipline. It's one of these two interpretations that most likely Jesus refers to. But I think what's most important is just who put these leaders in this place. Notice the detail. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, they have seated themselves. If they are taking the initiative, if they're appointing themselves, this is not good. The authority among the Jewish people belongs to God. God should do that appointing. God should place his people there. God should place leaders in positions of authority. And what's what makes what Jesus says next all the more interesting. He says, all that they tell you, do and observe. It's a curious thing, isn't it? If they're appointing themselves and making themselves in charge, why would we follow them and listen to them? Well, it's because the Word of God remains the Word of God. Even though these men have appointed themselves to the position, it does not in, in any way undermine the power and authority of God's Word. So if a Pharisee teaches it, if a hypocrite commands it, no way does it undermine the authority of the Bible. I mean, for a moment, just consider if it did. For men in in moments of ungodliness, imagine if, if a man in his moment of ungodliness could take away from the power of God's word. How quickly God's word might lose its power. But praise God, that does not happen. God's word remains God's word. It remains perfect and and pure and powerful no matter who divides it. For the scribes and Pharisees in verse 3, they say things and do not do them. In a word, they're hypocrites. That word's going to get a lot of use in verse 13 and following. Hypocrisy would be a symptom of a religion that's derailed. A hypocrite is is someone who says one thing but then goes and does another. For the Pharisees, they sounded holy, but they were not. And the way they treated the people of God, well, that just confirmed it. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as of a finger. Have you ever seen a donkey carry a load? There's some pretty funny pictures online. You could look it up sometime. The average donkey stands about 44 inches high. He can carry a load of about um, 125 pounds. But let's say that we put another 10 pounds on that donkey and then another 20 pounds and one of those big 45-pound weights from the gym. Put that on top of the donkey. This donkey would eventually tire more easily He'd need more food and water. He'd need more breaks. Someone has suggested that donkeys are smart and safety conscious. They say they must, this must be a, a donkey apologist. It gets mistaken for stubbornness. The donkeys aren't stubborn. They're just safety conscious. And that's the reputation. They have a tendency just to stop and not move. Well, the Pharisees have been piling on top of the people all kinds of rules and laws and regulations and nonsense. And then they're offering no help to them. 
Jesus says they don't even lift a finger. There is no assistance for the people. Even back in Matthew, they've come along to accuse the disciples. They've rebuked Jesus. Jesus, your disciples are out picking grain on the Sabbath. They're working when they should be resting. But expect no help from us. Clearly, they're hungry, but we're not going to feed them. Jesus will go on to say of these Pharisees that they're not even doing what they're preaching. Do you hear the sound of a derailed religion? They would talk the talk, but they would not do the deed. They would talk the talk, but they'd offer no help. I'd say one way to avoid this hazard would be to simply slow down, to avoid the trap that the Pharisees have found themselves in. A train derails when it takes a curve way too fast. We talked about that at the beginning. And I'd say that when you and I slow down, when we allow our life to catch up to our mouths, we can avoid the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Nowhere does the Bible command hasty speech. The Bible doesn't endorse impulsive words. A trigger finger tongue is not to be desired. Rather, Proverbs 13, verse 3, the one who guards his mouth preserves life. Or Proverbs 10, verse 19, when there are many words, transgression is is unavoidable. And in Proverbs 17, verse 27, he who restrains his words has knowledge. You see, when we slow down, when we give one extra second to process what comes out of our mouths, to make sure it flows from our heart, we avoid this hazard of the Pharisees. We avoid the hypocrisy that they display. You see, our religion can remain on the rails when our hearts are right with God. And we would not be hypocritical in those moments. We would instead be very helpful, unlike the Pharisees. In verse 5, Jesus will go on to spot a second hazard of a derailed religion. In verses 5 through 7, we've derailed when we only play the part. We've derailed when we play the part. Now, this is a similar issue as the first one, but now Jesus is speaking of deeds. These are deeds that are done for the wrong reasons or deeds done with wrong motives. Verse 5, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues, the respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. You know, Jesus indicates that the Pharisees now do something. They do deeds. They do deeds to be seen by others. Now, these men were supposed to be holy and righteous and upstanding. They were supposed to be exemplary and to look as though they are men who've been blessed. Back in Matthew chapter 6, we learned that their giving, however, has come with a trumpet blast. They practiced a very public form of prayer, standing on the street corners, standing in the synagogues, And they even altered their faces when they fasted. Look, I'm hungry, I'm I'm suffering. I'd say if the kingdom of God were a department store, these guys would be in the front window. They put on an awful lot of work 
into looking the part. Now remember, what, their religion is not flowing from, from hearts that are filled with the Lord. So what they need to do is they need to come alongside, they need to manufacture that. Jesus says that they brought in their phylacteries. They lengthened the tassels of their garments. A phylactery would be a small leather case, like a little box. It'd be attached to some kind of, of a band or a ribbon. They would wear these around their foreheads or strapped to their arms. And it's, I believe, a literal application of what God had commanded the people. This goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8. Speaking of God's word, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. They took that verse literally and bound verses in a box on their heads. These tassels also have their roots way back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, verse 12. You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourselves. This is probably just a reminder to obey God's commands or His covenant calling. The Pharisees liked to lengthen theirs. People could see their big old tassels and those boxes strapped to their foreheads and think, man, those guys are holy. They're blessed. Boy, God must love them. Verse 6, they love the places of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. If you can imagine a U-shaped table arrangement, the seat of honor would be right in the center at the, at the bottom of that U. That's the seat of honor. And even if the host occupied it, they would want the left and the right-hand side. That's where the dignitary sat, right beside the host. These guys want to see what's going on, and they want to be seen when they're in the synagogues. The best seats belong to them. And if the eyes of the people were not enough, they also needed the voices. They needed the accolades. They loved respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. The scribes and the Pharisees could play the part. I think if they could... They would throw a parade for themselves. They would look good. They want people to see them. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Well, how do we avoid this type of derailment? How do we avoid this type of a hazard? I think Jesus is building up to it. We'll get to it in verses 11 and 12, but I think there's really something to be said about a quiet service. Going about our service for the Lord quietly, humbly, without a lot of fanfare, without a lot of attention, maybe serving the Lord without social media. You see, I think that we need to starve something that sometimes rears its ugly jaws from within our hearts, something within us that craves the, the attention or the approval or even the accolades. Those things, don't get me wrong, aren't bad. In fact, they may very well find you as you quietly serve the Lord. But the point is that it's the eyes of God we want to serve and not the eyes of men. These Pharisees, they were doing deeds just apart from a heart, a heart that was not enamored by God, a, a, a heart that was seeking the approval of men. It was a fake religion. It was a show. Instead of that, 
The New Testament gives us other examples. Urbanus, Tryphosa, Persis. Who? Exactly. These are names that Paul thanked in his letters almost in passing. They're names so unfamiliar with us, we just gloss right over them. They're blips on the screen, but they were quiet, humble servants for God. What a wonderful example for you and I. God knows full well our gifts and, and our service. People might, but the point would be that, that God is honored by that and, and not, not we ourselves, not seeking the approval of others. Well, there's one final hazard in our text to avoid this morning. We'll go up to verse 12, but we'll look at verse 8. We've derailed when we seek to receive recognition. We've derailed when we seek recognition. And here in this verse, in verse 8, Jesus is going to move from speaking about these people. He's going to speak right to them. In verse 8, you're going to notice that flows right from verse 7. In verse 7, the Pharisees love to hear respectful greetings. And we now learn of some of these other titles they sought, probably the ones they liked to hear when they were in the marketplace. Jesus says, do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Rabbi means literally, (laughs) my great one. You can imagine how that could inflate someone's head. But by the time of Jesus, it took on a more common form, simply the word teacher, That's what Jesus assigns to it in verse 8. Notice how he equates the word teacher with rabbi. In fact, most of your translations are going to capitalize either the word one, one with a capital O, or the word teacher with a capital T. And what's happening in your Bibles there is that the translation or the translator is taking the liberty to indicate that Jesus is speaking of his Father or of God. The Godhead or God the Father, he is the true teacher is what Jesus says. And something happens similar in verses 9 through 10. Something similar in meaning, and you'll see the same thing happening with the Godhead, with these capital letters. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one, capital O, is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. Now, I do want to point out that, that all of these words that Jesus uses, none of them are inherently bad. Now, Paul calls himself a father to the Corinthians. Uh, he's alluding to his spiritual fatherhood over the church that he's planted and, and helped get going. Concerning leaders, God prescribes elders as leaders in local churches. Even going back to the word in question in verse 8, that word rabbi, John the Baptist was called rabbi. Ephesians verse, chapter 4, verse 11 reveals that God has given to his church teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So words like father and leader and rabbi, each of these words was used positively elsewhere in the Bible. And there's no contradiction then in what Jesus is preaching and what the rest of the New Testament says. Again, the context is the key for what he's saying. He's warning, big picture, against the hazards of a derailed religion. And the point he's making now with these words, with these titles, concerns status and privilege. Titles are not to be sought as an end in themselves. Jesus would have you and I avoid that pursuit too. 
that we would not pursue titles as ends in themselves. He would have you and I avoid tempting others in that way. Now, I don't believe that Jesus is speaking against encouraging other people, using positive words and lifting people up as it's appropriate. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. But we also don't need to get crazy with this in terms of flattering, bootlicking. A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps, Proverbs 29, 5. The Bible does make a distinction between genuine encouragement and then extravagant exaltation. It's the latter he's speaking against here. So in verses 11 and 12, then we hit the apex of his message this morning. I think if we were to ask Jesus, Lord, what is is one point, what is one thing that I can take away? What, What is one golden nugget of truth that I can do to avoid the derailment of the Pharisees? Verses 11 and 12. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Jesus indicates here that the Pharisees have made poor leaders because they've made poor servants. Whenever you have a leadership gap, you have a servanthood gap. The Pharisees saw themselves as leaders. They sat in the chair of Moses, Jesus says. And then in their vision of leadership, they were leaders and everyone else was a servant. The two did not go together in their economy, but in the definition of Jesus, to lead is to serve and to serve is to lead, at least when it comes to religious leaders. And he has flipped this whole thing around, hasn't he? He says that the greatest are the servants. Greatness does not come from talking the talk. It doesn't come from playing the part. It doesn't come from receiving recognition. He says it comes from service. That's remarkable. Heaven's going to be a complete reversal of what some people think that it will be. Some people are going to go to heaven expecting very little, and they're going to get an enormous amount. And some people will go to heaven expecting a great deal and get very little. I'm not saying there's a tent city right off the Golden Road. I don't know how God's going to work this out. But it's something like that where the whole thing's flipped around. There's this myth that the Greeks told of a man named Icarus. And Icarus was imprisoned on, a, on, on a, the, land of, the island of Crete. And in an effort to get him up off of that island, his father had created for him wings forming them out of feathers and out of wax. And the father warned the son, don't fly too low to the earth and don't fly too high to the sun. Quote, for the fogs about the earth may weigh you down and the blaze from the sun are going to melt your feathers apart. Well, Icarus flew. He came up off of the ground and he took to the sky and he had his father's words but he became complacent, and he became proud, and he disobeyed the instructions that his father gave him. He flew too close to the sun, and the wax melted, and one by one, the feathers floated down toward the earth, and Icarus kept flapping. 
He kept descending, bare arms only, eventually drowning in the sea. Greatness for the Pharisees was flying as high as they could. They bundled together rule after rule after rule, and they placed them then upon the backs of others when they themselves did not keep the rules. They made religion the means to achieve greatness. They had the word of God, but they modified it. The flesh got a hold of it. They derailed religion. But what was it for Jesus? For Jesus, greatness was service. It was a humble service from the heart. And I think, summing it up, this is a great way to avoid the the derailment the Pharisees experienced. Something about the human heart at times that wants to turn, turn, turn this beautiful relationship with Jesus Christ into just a religion, a checkbox of, of do's and don'ts and cans and can'ts. And if you find yourself this morning religious, even, even strongly religious, but operating out of a heart that is distant from God, there's good news. Jesus Christ invites you to return to him, to set aside the checklist to set aside all of the rules and the commands and, and come to him with, with a clean heart, to confess your, your insufficiency to keep all the rules, to believe that Jesus Christ has kept them for you. He kept every law perfectly. And he comes this morning to unburden you from doing that thing which you cannot do. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, he said, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Believers, we still need this invitation. Those verses just aren't some kind of tool for evangelism. That's the fount from which you and I need to come and drink from. Because our hearts, too, are not perfect, not yet. And they have a tendency to want to fall off of that rail into the world of Phariseeism. But Jesus Christ offers us so much more. All the commands and the rules, yes, they're true. We must follow them and they will come, but we need to get right with Jesus. We need to get right with Christ first and receive his grace and to know his love and everything else will flow from that. That will keep us on the tracks. That will keep us from derailment. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we confess that there are times when we are not very good at driving this train. The gospel is pure, and your grace is sweet, and we love you and receive it, but there's something in our hearts that tells us uh, we're not good enough, we don't receive it, we don't deserve it anymore. There's something in our hearts that wants to work really hard to please you and win your favor. Father, forgive us and give us an assurance to know that you are sufficient and that your gospel through faith by grace is sufficient. I pray, Father, for complete confidence and assurance in the word of God that we would turn from our own efforts and turn to you. Thank you for confidence and thank you for forgiveness. May it be ours in abundance this day. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.